Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome back, everyone, to EM Guidewire. Normally, again, we'd be broadcasting to you from the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studio at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. But again, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm isolated at home and still in my closet. That being stated, we're going to continue with our COVID-19 topics that are reproduced from our emergency medicine conference Today, in this episode, we're going to join Dr. Andrew Simos, neurologic emergency medicine expert, and learn about how COVID-19 infections may be leading to more than just pulmonary problems in patients. Also, if you're not careful, you may learn some Greek language tips. So, without any further delay, Dr. Asimos. Keeping with the COVID-inspired law conference theme, I decided a few days ago that it'd be worthy to talk about neurological manifestations and complications of COVID-19. Obviously, we've talked a lot about managing these patients from a a pulmonary standpoint, but I don't know that any of us have given this particular topic a lot of attention, including myself, prior to looking through some of the literature that I'm going to discuss. So hopefully this is going to be helpful to folks and, and maybe we can you know talk about a couple of the things uh, that I bring up uh, at the end. These are my disclosures and uh, what I initially intended to talk about today was uh, the updated stroke guidelines. At the end, if we have time, we can spend a few minutes just talking about the potential or the challenges that the COVID a pandemic uh, is bringing to regionalized stroke care and, and some of the things that I think we can do to to alleviate those challenges. But these are my disclosures, none of which are certainly going to pertain to the first thing that we talk about. And um, I have to say I was inspired to to do this talk several days ago. Uh, I think a lot of you know that I'm on Matul and the Maryland folks did a cardiovascular symposium last week that they made available online and I was listening to this talk by Amal a few days ago and decided that if Amal is talking about what COVID-19 does to the heart, it would be worthwhile for me to find out about what COVID does to the brain and the rest of the nervous system. I'm certainly not trying to equate myself with, with Amal Matul, but um, I thought that uh, you know it would be a good idea to, to discuss this. So we're going to do a couple of cases. I had intended to only start with one case presentation, but I was involved with a case yesterday that I felt compelled to, to add on because it's certainly pertinent. Uh, this is a case that is has been submitted for publication. And this, this case came from Henry Ford Hospital, which is where I trained in Michigan. I think many folks know that Detroit is one of the metropolitan areas that's being hit particularly hard by COVID. Henry Ford, unfortunately, has somewhere in the neighborhood of 750 healthcare workers associated with that institution who unfortunately uh, have contracted COVID-19. So they've been challenged not only from the standpoint of a a surge in patient volume, but also from uh, a lot of healthcare workers that have become infected. But anyway, this is a case, and this is from the radiology literature. So what's published about this case is a little sparse from the standpoint of clinical presentation. 
because the focus of this was on the radiologic findings, but it's a 58-year-old female airline worker. It's not clear to me exactly what her capacity was working in the airline industry, but she presented with a three-day history of cough, fever, and altered mental status. Obviously a presentation that we're seeing a lot of now. And she was awake, but she was unable to answer any questions beyond saying her name. So whether or not this represented encephalopathy or whether or not this represented uh, aphasia, uh, I, don't, I don't know that any of us could say based on the history that's provided. Uh, the one thing I'll, I'll say, and certainly I think everybody has experienced, sometimes it can be difficult to distinguish between the two of those things. Um, at times, uh, I think we're able to do that, but, but a lot of times you're, you're kind of in this conundrum of, is this patient just encephalopathic or they really have an expressive aphasia? And it's not clear to me that this patient was evaluated as a possible acute stroke, but certainly the patient did end up getting uh, neuroimaging performed. And the first panel on the left is the non-contrast CT that was performed on the patient. And you can see the positive arrow sign that points to this area of bilateral hypoattenuation uh, of the bilateral medial thalami. Uh, you know, when you see that, I think, you know, people that, that look at these things a lot would think about a couple things. Number one, you would wonder, is this possibly due to a venous infarction from a venous sinus thrombosis that involves um, the straight sinus or the inferior sagittal sinus? Um, for that reason, they performed the study, which is in table or uh, panel B, which is a CT venogram that shows patency of the uh, cerebral vasculature. So it doesn't look like that was the cause of this patient's uh, findings on the CT. Then the other thing you would have to worry about is, is this possibly due to a basal occlusion? And um, with a top of the basilar occlusion, you can knock out the bilateral thalami. So that's another thing to look at. But again, it doesn't look like either of those entities are what's causing this patient's problem. Uh, the patient, not surprisingly, ended up being positive for COVID-19. Um, you can see they had a CSF uh, uh, analysis that was performed. They don't specify on what the opening pressure was. My suspicion was the opening pressure would probably have been uh, elevated, but I think in this case, um, the cell count might have been normal, the glucose level might have been normal. Um, and again, that's based on what we've seen with other viral infections with what this ended up being. Uh, they did not specifically perform uh, SARS-CoV-2 testing. So that's COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2 are, are the same thing. So um, I'll typically refer to COVID to this is COVID-19, but if I say SARS-CoV-2, we're, we're talking about the same thing. Um, this is additional neuroimaging. So this is an MRI. And I know we don't look at a lot of MRIs. When we do look at MRIs, we typically look at the sequences that are in the top panel. And you know the ASEMOS rule of interpreting an MRI as white is typically bad on an MRI. And again, you've got some positive um, arrow signs, but you can see that hyperintensity uh, of the bilateral medial uh, temporal lobes, and again, the bilateral thalami. Um, the lower sequences we don't look like it look at as much, but they show some some hemorrhage within uh, some of those regions and some rim enhancement on post contrast images. 
And this patient ended up ha uh, being diagnosed with something called acute necrotizing encephalopathy. I don't know if anybody's seen this. Perhaps some of our pediatric uh, emergency medicine colleagues have seen this because this is predominantly seen in a pediatric po population. And it's most typically been previously described after influenza uh, or other viral infections. Um, importantly, uh, there's no direct viral invasion that causes this. This, you know, just like the cytokine storm that, that happens in the lungs, the same thing can happen in the brain in patients that have uh, the infections, including coronavirus infections. It results in uh, blood brain breakdown, uh, blood brain barrier breakdown, and causes this. Uh, typically, what you see is what this patient had. Uh, with uh, the thalami bilaterally being involved, but the brainstem and the cerebellum can also be involved. So uh, as can the cerebral white matter. So it's important, you know, when you see patients that have these mental status changes to, um, you know, do a brainstem exam, do a cranial nerve exam, uh, you know, do a cerebellar exam. You know, we've talked about what are the important components of that exam. Uh, it's not clear to me to what extent a lot of these patients that are coming in are getting uh, comprehensive neurological exams. I'm not saying it's necessarily important in all these patients, but I think especially when you've got some features of the things that we're about to talk about, you need to think about perhaps doing more of a neuro exam than you might have given thought to uh, previously. This patient uh, was started on IVIgG, although I, um, to the best of my knowledge, there's no definitive treatment for. Um, uh, A&E, um, like a lot of things, it just relies on uh, supportive care. This patient was not treated with high-dose steroids because of, of concern for respiratory compromise. And this, this carries pretty high mortality. I don't know what this patient's outcome is or uh, was, I'm, and the patient may actually still be in the hospital. Uh, but for those that do survive, about 40% have, have neurological sequelae. So that's one case. And then this is a case that I got involved with yesterday uh, that um, came across our stroke network. So certainly much closer to home. Um, this is an 84-year-old female with coronary artery disease, CKD, diastolic heart failure. So, you know, just starting off, obviously, this is an elderly patient with comorbidities. And we know these are the patients that are typically not doing well and developing complications. She had been diagnosed with COVID-19 on March 31st. Um, interestingly, her husband, who is 87 years old, was COVID-19 positive as well. And uh, they were initially quarantined at home and had been followed by virtual care. But about six days after they were originally diagnosed, they were experiencing uh, you know, functional decline. They had uh, progression of their weakness, confusion, poor PO intake. And the decision was made to at least admit uh, the woman, to the best of my knowledge, the husband was admitted to the hospital. As part of a workup, she had a head CT that was negative. She had a chest X-ray uh, that was negative. She did not have a chest CT performed, but the chest X-ray was negative for infiltrates. So. A couple days ago, she was sitting up in a chair. She didn't have a cough. She didn't have dyspnea. She uh, had no chest pain or a headache, a little bit of back and belly pain. But then um, on the 7th, which I guess now was um, two days ago, she had felt much better. 
uh, wanted to go home, had been on room air. If you actually look at her vital signs, she was consistently had stable vital signs, was afebrile, pulse ox readings above 92%. And the decision was made that she would go back home on self-quarantine and that they would get some you know, private home help to, to evaluate her. So this is the, um, this I guess is the virtual home follow-up contact. And this is a note from yesterday morning. So as you can see, um, the virtual provider tried to contact the patient. Nobody answered the phone. Turned out that the patient's husband had called the daughter and the daughter eventually tracked down this care provider. The reason the husband had called the daughter is because uh, the patient had been too weak to stand. Uh, she had uh, gotten out of bed to go to the bathroom and then was unable to make it back to the bed, ended up sleeping on the floor, uh, did not appear to be breathing uh, uncomfortably, but clearly was not doing well. And ultimately the decision was made for, uh, to call 911. The patient was brought to one of our affiliate hospitals yesterday morning. So based on her presentation, uh, the teleneurologists were, um, got involved as a telestroke consult. And you can see um, the history. And if you look at the neuro exam, the patient's got a right-sided gaze. She's following simple commands, but she's got a left-sided visual field cut and a dense left hemiplegia. And hopefully everyone will recognize that constellation of symptoms as a right MCA distribution syndrome. And certainly the concern would be in this patient, although she had previously described focal weak, or excuse me, generalized weakness, now has localizing weakness and other associated neurologic symptoms that you know would make you worry that this lady is now having an acute stroke. So she has this perfusion scan done. And again, I know we've periodically looked at these. Uh, this perfusion scan is that green area that you see here in the you know, temporal parietal lobe is consistent with ischemia in that region. Uh, the, the slices on the left suggest that this patient, at least on the perfusion scan, does not yet have a completed infarct. But this pattern is highly consistent with um, an M2 division, the inferior division uh, occlusion. You know, one of the things that we found in looking at these patterns is you can typically predict what vessel is involved based on the perfusion pattern. As a matter of fact, we just did a study teaching the telestroke nurses uh, how to recognize these perfusion patterns so that we can really get ahead of these cases as soon as they see them. And what we found out is that you can, uh, we were able to teach the telestroke nurses in about four months how to do this very well. And uh, we're actually publishing the results of that experience. That paper just got published in Stroke uh, which we were happy about. And we found that out a couple days ago. But bottom line is you can look at these perfusion patterns and, and predict what vessel it is. Um, the important thing to do whenever you look at a case like this is not to just look at the perfusion sequences, but to always look at the non-contrast CT. And without getting into this too much, you want to make sure that the patient doesn't already have what appears to be an established infarct. And I don't know if my pointer is, is working, but if you look in the right hemisphere, which is what we're concerned about, and you just look at the, the sulci on the left hemisphere, you can see there's a lot more edema 
And this patient, in fact, is already showing signs of a completed infarct in this area. So although the perfusion scan looks like there's salvageable tissue, um, the non-contrast CT is suggesting that this patient's already got a completed infarct. This is the CT angiogram of this patient. This is not the way we typically see CTs in that the right side is actually on the right side of this scanned. Um, but if you look at this, um, and can you all see what I'm pointing to? I don't know if you all can see my pointer. I assume that you can. But this is the branch. So this is the middle cerebral artery, and this is the branch of the middle cerebral artery. So the middle cerebral artery branches into a superior division, which uh, supplies the frontal lobe, and an inferior division, which supplies the temporal lobe. The parietal lobe is typically up for grabs uh, between the two of those vessels. One of those branches is usually the more dominant uh, branch. And um, in this patient, unfortunately, it's this inferior division where the occlusion is. So right here, this little nubbin, there's basically uh, a clot sitting there right where this branch is, and it's knocking out the inferior division, which unfortunately in this patient not only supplies most of the temporal lobe, but also the parietal lobe. So if you look on the left side, you can see really good collaterals. On the um, right side, you've got poor collaterals, which is all consistent with what you see on the non-contrast CT. This is the radiologist's interpretation, again, without you know, getting into things. Um, that's what they found. But there's also another interesting finding on this CT. So these are the coronal cuts of the CT. And based on the fact that I've chosen to show the lung windows on this, and the fact that I'm not showing any blood vessels or any brain on this, but I'm showing lung fields, I think everybody knows what's being pointed out. So this patient, unfortunately, has signs of a viral pneumonia and this is certainly consistent with, you know, the COVID-19 infection that this patient has. So, unfortunately, because of her, um, her uh, CT findings, uh, she was not a con uh, considered a candidate for revascularization therapy via mechanical thrombectomy. She was outside the TPA window because her last known well was unknown. So... Um, this patient, unfortunately, is probably going to go on to sustain a, a pretty big infarct of that region, but I'm not sure that there's a whole lot we could have done done to alleviate that. So, can you hear me? Yes. So she was not considered a mechanical thrombectomy candidate because of her chest CT findings. No, because of her head CT findings. She, she already had a completed infarct uh, based on the non-contrast uh, CT, uh, you know, findings. So for that reason, she okay. was not considered a, no. Okay. It was absolutely not because of her, her chest CT findings. It was because the, 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 the non-contrast CT already was showing signs of a completed infarct. Okay. So this you, is, um, Kathy, can yeah. you hear me? Um, yes. I was also going to ask that question. Um, I thought that they go on MRI to determine if they complete the um, infarct because that's the most sensitive test. No, I mean, the guidelines are really, um, and the guidelines are pretty clear about this. You know, you look at a non-contrast um, CT and an aspect score in, you know, in most cases, you, you know, you can't get an MRI quickly, but, you know, the standard of decision-making relative to mechanical thrombectomy does not rely on an MRI at all right now. It relies on a non-contrast CT 
and specifically talk about the, you know, the aspect score and, um, you know, signs of early ischemia and, you know, completed infarct on a non-contract CT. Uh, you know, the other thing that's not clear to me is M2 occlusions, depending on the caliber of the vessel, sometimes that that's uh, a, a vessel where you can perform mechanical thrombectomy and ca get a catheter out that far. Sometimes you can't. Um, but she was not deemed to be a candidate, and I think appropriately so, based on um, based on the, the overall imaging. So those are a couple cases. And, you know, um, what I want to talk about now are what are the typical neurological manifestations that we can expect to see in these patients. This is a timeline that was kind of put together that kind of just describes uh, when neurological manifestations have been, you know, noticed um, important time epochs relative to COVID-19. So on the December 8th, we had the first case of, of a pneumonia from COVID-19 that was diagnosed, as everybody knows, in Wuhan, China. There's a retrospective case series that described some of the first experience of patients in Wuhan, China that I'm going to go over um, uh, momentarily. You know, that's retrospective. There's certainly some limitations of what's in there. Um, you can see late in February, the Journal of Medical Virology published this paper that suggested that some of the respiratory failure in COVID-19 patients may be due to involvement of the virus in the cardiorespiratory centers uh, in the um, medulla and the brainstem, whether or not that, that truly is contributing to the, um, the respiratory failure and other, you know, respiratory problems that some of these patients are seeing, I think is, is up for, um, uh, well, is, is not clear, but um, based on what we know, it's certainly possible that that's contributing to some of the respiratory failure that these patients see. In early March, you can see that the brain was basically added as a pathologic specimen for diagnosing COVID-19. And then on March 4th, um, that's probably one of the most important um, parts of this is that actually demonstrated that COVID-19 can, COVID-19, excuse me, can directly invade the nervous system uh, based on the findings of that patient in encephalitis where the CSF had uh, confirmed gene sequencing for COVID-19. So it certainly does have the ability to invade the nervous system. Uh, this is a paper that I found in doing my literature review and this is, in my mind, um, an example of some really bizarre foreshadowing in the medical literature. If you look at when this paper was public, uh, this paper was received for publication on, on November 12th uh, in 2019. This was obviously right before the whole COVID you know, epidemic. You can see that this journal, Viruses, ended up accepting this for publication in, in December, you know, essentially right right when we were first starting to see the first cases. I suspect that this journal editor is happy that he uh, accepted this paper and that he, he or she did not, um, uh, did not reject this paper. My suspicion is that this paper is getting a lot more citations than anybody would have expected when it was first uh, published, but it's, it's quite extensive. And I have to tell you, I don't think I've ever experienced something like I have reading this paper, because when you read this paper in the context text of everything that you know that's happened, it really is, um, 
you know, when you read it, you're, you're just like, geez, a lot of this really just came true for, you know, what, what happens when people get these infections. Um, but anyway, I suspect it's not a paper that most of you are going to be um, looking at, but it, uh, I, I found it interesting. So just, just to talk a little bit about coronavirus in the brain, obviously we had, um, you know, uh, SARS, which I guess was in, you know, 2002. We had, you know, MERS in 2012. Um, the um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 or, or, or COVID-19 has gen uh, high genetic similarity to both of those. I think there's about 80% genetic similarity between COVID uh, or COVID-19 and SARS um, uh, and the other SARS viruses. So, uh, it's, we can, I think, expect to see some of the same pathology that we've experienced with both of those. And we know that based on what we experienced with those infections, that the brain is, is a major, has been a major target in the past for those uh, infections. So what, what have we typically seen with coronavirus infections relative to neurological complications? Um, well, certainly viral meningitis. Uh, obviously, most infectious meningitis is viral. Um, uh, there are a lot of interesting peripheral nervous system things that have been described. Anosmia is a loss of smell. You guys are going to get a little bit of a Greek lesson um, when we go over some of the other peripheral uh, nervous system things that have uh, been described. I think a lot of you have heard about some of them, uh, but we'll talk a little bit more about those. Uh, a lot of encephalitides have been described, both infectious encephalitis and um, more of a, you know, immune system uh, encephalitis that we see in, in other, you know, autoimmune uh, diseases. Uh, Guillain-Barre has been described in some patients. Myositis has been described in, pa in some patients. So I think, you know, when you look at these diagnoses, Obviously, you know, as an emergency medicine physician, I think, you know, one of the things you think about is how important it is for, is it for me to identify these in patients that are coming in where perhaps, you know, my biggest concern is their respiratory status and their oxygenation. Uh, you know, should we be doing, you know, um, LPs on these patients in the emergency department, especially patients that have clinical syndromes that are consistent with meningitis or encephalitis? Um, you know, I think that, that certainly it, in some cases it, it would be indicated to what extent it's going to change management. Obviously, it's going to depend on, on what you find. I think a lot of these patients, it's probably not ultimately going to change their management. Uh, but some of these patients are probably going to be, you know, candidates for treatment with um, some things to, you know, treat brain edema or, or other things that are associated with these uh, with these diagnoses, you know, just to talk about these a little bit. Um, again, the most common encephalitis, you know, that you're going to see is certainly viral encephalitis. And, you know, we all know how these patients are typically going to present, you know, headache, vomiting, high fever. Uh, again, I think, you know, when you look at that, a lot of symptoms are going to be consistent with what a lot of these patients are going to present with in general. Um, but certainly when you've got, you know, disorders of consciousness, which, which you can presumably just see, uh, you know, due to oxygenation status and overall systemic illness, I think you've got to give some thought to, is this patient possibly um, being affected by, you know, CNS involvement uh, of, the, of the infection? Um, 
Then there, you know, you can see a cephalitis that is, is non-infectious. This, you know, this may be most appropriately termed toxic encephalitis, or excuse me, toxic encephalopathy, not encephalitis, because, you know, encephalitis, uh, well, I mean, encephalitis implies inflammation of the brain, and these patients do have cerebral edema, but um, the important thing about this is these, these patients do not actually have evidence of uh, direct infection looking at the CSF. Um, you know, we see this in a lot of patients, a lot of patients who just have viral syndromes because of their, you know, viremia and their overall systemic illness, they come in and a lot of these patients, you know, have a headache, don't feel so good. Um, uh, you know, we, I'm, I'm sure all of us send home, not necessarily, you know, the, the, you know, the severe encephalitis and, and, and uh, viral meningitis, but there's no doubt in my mind that there are a lot of patients that have viral meningitis that we, we send home all the time that obviously end up doing well. Uh, so there's a spectrum of, of, you know, all of these diseases. Acute stroke, I think it's, it's pretty clear that COVID-19 infection is a risk factor for stroke. Uh, you know, stroke introduces, uh, may introduce a hypercoagulable, well, the critical illness can introduce a hypercoagulable state, which, which predisposes these patients to, to stroke, obviously. Uh, you can get uh, virus-related cardiac in, injury that can predispose these patients to having uh, cardioembolic uh, events, which is obviously one of the main things that causes a stroke. You know, there are derangements in, in some of the coagulation factors at both extremes to make patients both uh, hypercoagulable or hypocoagulable. Um, so I think there are a lot of potential uh, mechanisms that uh, could contribute to potentially causing stroke in these patients. Um, so next, I just want to talk, go through this uh, retrospective case series that was published. And, uh, you know, if you read a lot about the neurological manifestations of COVID-19, everybody's talking about this paper. Although, you know, again, this is a retrospective study that basically came out of three hospitals in Wuhan, China. They looked at a total of 214 hospitalized patients that all had COVID-19. 78 of those patients ended up having neurological manifestations. You can see the time period from when they collected data. So they categorized the neurologic symptoms that they, they found into three categories. And if you look at the methodology of this paper, it's not at all clear to me whether these three categories were made a priori or if these were done after they had collected all of their data. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's hard to know exactly how these, how they arrived at these, these groups of symptoms, but basically they grouped things into, you know, CNS symptoms, which 25% of the patients had, and you can see what they grouped into CNS symptoms, you know, headache, dizziness, impaired consciousness, stroke. Uh, then they talk about the peripheral nervous systems, um, and we'll talk, talk about hypoyepsia, and by the way, I'm sure a lot of you have heard that pronounced a lot of different ways. I would say based on my knowledge of the Greek language and the Greek derivation of that, I'm pretty confident that, that the appropriate rendering of that term is yepsia, hypoyepsia, not hypogusia or some of the other things I've heard. But there are other things, hyposmia, hypopsia, um, a couple things um, that I um, uh, 
well, I, I'll be honest, I had never heard of hypopsia before. We'll talk about that. And then um, certainly some patients are seeing, you know, skeletal muscle symptoms. And those are typically patients that have a lot of other systemic illness. This is the actual table from their paper. Um, and they actually categorize patients into severe, severely ill versus non-severely ill patients. And that was done based on uh, international guidelines for community acquired pneumonia. So the severity of illness was done from a lung pathophysiology state, not from a neuropathophysiologic uh, state. Uh, but you can see that um, more of the severe patients were likely to have um, any nervous system involvement. Uh, the most common CNS symptoms that patients had were dizziness, Obviously, that's, you know, undifferentiated dizziness, so it's hard to know exactly what all went into that term, and headache. Um, lesser patients had impaired consciousness and strokes, but you can see that patients who had severe infections were more likely to have impaired consciousness or, or strokes associated with their, their COVID-19. Uh, from the standpoint of peripheral nervous system, uh, you can see about 9% of patients uh, had symptoms. And by the way, the numbers in parentheses are not numbers. They're actually uh, percentages, which is a little bit confusing. When you look at the top, you think that those are, are numbers, should be numbers, but they're, they're actually the percentages. They're in the, in the parentheses. Um, you can see the most common thing is something that has been described that we'll talk about momentarily. Uh, it's gotten a lot of attention especially in the lay press, uh, this um, uh, diminished sense of taste, which is what hypoepsia is, and then hyposmia. Uh, the muscle injury, as I've said, those are typically patients that have had, you know, liver involvement, kidney involvement. Um, not surprisingly, those patients end up having elevated CPKs and LDHs and other things that you would expect to see in patients that had associated muscle injury. So, um, just to talk about this, and I don't know if folks have, have seen this yet. I don't know how if people are routinely asking this. I think it's been, you know, we've been encouraged to ask about this. Um, and I'm not sure if it's going to play out, but this may end up being uh, a marker for less severe illness. And, uh, you know, I think if there was a way to systematically collect this, it would be interesting in my mind to find out if, if this is to tends to be associated more with less severe illness than more severe illness. But I'm not sure that, you know, we're, that's going to be able to be done reliably retrospectively. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we've got taste buds that, that can detect stuff that's bittersweet, salty, and sour. I think that everybody understands that smell is a big driver of taste. And the reason that these patients develop a reduced sense of, of taste is due to the um, reduced um, sense of smell. So just to use these terms appropriately, um, so hypoepsia is reduced, reduced taste. Uh, dysepsia is distorted taste. And I know that that's a subtle distinction, but um, if you are going to choose to document this, it's probably important to use the correct term. Aefsia is a total lo loss of um, taste sensation. So you can see, you know, all three of those derangements of taste. And again, if you choose to ask patients about this, I think it's important to make sure you're uh, describing whatever their altered taste sensation is. 
appropriately. Um, the next thing that's been described, again, not surprisingly, since I just said that smell is a main driver of taste, is that these patients have been noted to have a reduced ability of smell and to detect uh, odors. Uh, again, following the same kind of nomenclature, you can have reduced ability to smell or you can have altered sensation of smell, which is dysosmia. And then anosmia are patients that are not able to detect uh, any odors at all. So again, if you choose to um, ask about those and document and describe those things, do those appropriately. Um, you know, I think this is, this is an interesting graphic. So I think everybody is aware that the receptor that has been implicated that the SARS-CoV-2, the COVID-19, um, uh, mainly binds to is the ACE2 inceptor. And those receptors are present, as we all know, in the lower airways, in the alveoli and the bronchi. Um, but they're, they're actually mostly located in, in the nasopharynx. And, you know, everybody's talking about, obviously, wearing surgical masks. You know, if you look at, you know, when somebody sneezes, obviously, they're large particles, they're small particles. We, we know that, you know, just a routine surgical mask, if you're wearing one, can block the larger particles. The larger particles are the ones that are, are going to be the ones that are going to make it into the nasopharynx, but are not going to make it into the, the lower airways. And, you know, for that reason, certainly, you know, wearing a mask makes a lot of sense. Um, I think the fact that all of these particles are concentrated, or not the particles, all of these receptors are concentrated in the nasopharynx explains why we're seeing the hypoepsia and the hyposmia in these patients because um, of the effect that the virus is having on, on the receptors in those locations. Um, you know, the problem is uh, relative to the smaller, you know, particles, the N95 filter is the only one that's going to um, block those, and those are the ones that are that get down to the lower parts of the airway and are causing a lot of the lower, you know, lung disease, which is obviously problematic from a, uh, um, a respiratory standpoint. Uh, the other thing is there appears to be direct dissemination of the virus via the olfactory bulb from the nose directly into the brainstem. So, um, you know, I think another reasonable reason to wear a mask is that you're probably, uh, not probably, but you're, you're not going to pick your nose if you're wearing a mask um, and are much less likely to um, uh, touch your face. And because of this dissemination, again, from the olfactory bulb right up into the brain and the brainstem, uh, you probably want to avert doing that. And I would say just think of this picture uh, whenever you're contemplating sticking anything up your nose in the near future. Um, and then hypopsia. I have never heard of this term before. If you Google hypopsia, you almost can't even see it described. It looks like this is something that largely is described in the Asian medical literature, but it's an abnormality of vision. You know, I think everybody knows hypo is, is under, um, uh, Opsis in Greek is, is sight. Um, that's, that's why this is, so this is basically um, uh, refers to uh, a loss of vision. Um, yefsi, by the way, in Greek, the word for taste is, is yefsia. That's why um, uh, the word for loss of taste is, is hypoyefsia, again, under 
or, or lack of, of taste. Um, so, you know, we've got all of the, the immediate uh, neurological manifestations and sequelae. I think, you know, one of the questions is, can we expect that some of these patients are going to develop long-term neurological things like MS or some other neurologic diseases? I don't think that, that we know that. I think that the etiology, a lot of these things like MS is not clear. The coronaviruses have been associated with potentially triggering MS. Um, but to what extent um, this may uh, predispose patients to developing that, I think we're not going to know for a long time. But presumably, uh, as a result of this pandemic, we, we may know that more of the answer to that. Um, but certainly, that's not going to come, come very soon. Uh, I'm going to finish up this part of the talk and move on to the second part, which is actually very brief, if I have time, Brian, I don't know if I have time, but just to talk about core concepts, and you know, we can talk about this a little bit if you want to. So um, I think that, you know, you need to think about um, nervous system involvement when you see patients uh, that have suspected COVID-19 and, and have neurologic symptoms. I think that, you know, uh, timely analysis of CSF in some of these patients uh, is likely to be important. Um, you know, I don't know if anybody in our ED has performed an LP on any, uh, you know, person under investigation or suspected patient thus far. Uh, if they have, I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, what your experience was relative to what you found. You know, was it, uh, was it, did it show signs of, of meningitis or encephalitis? Was the opening pressure elevated? Um, you know, but it's probably something that we need to think about. I'll be honest. I, I don't know that I have great guidance on, you know, who specifically should be getting an LP in the ED versus, you know, who shouldn't. Um, uh, you know, again, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I guess I, my feeling is I'll know that patient when I see that patient. Um, but um, that remains to be seen. So happy to open it up for, for some comments and questions before I go on to just a few more uh, things to talk about. But I hope, hope that this was helpful to folks. I don't know to what extent people have thought about these things, but I thought we should give some attention to, to the nervous system since we've been mostly talking about the lungs so far. Andrew, this is Russ. Nice, yeah. nice presentation. You know, we're all focusing on terminal events in these patients being the lung. But yet, if you talk to some of the ICU folks or listen to webcasts, they, uh, they're kind of puzzled because it seems to be, the lung condition seems to be pretty much under control, but they die unexpectedly. You think this is because they've got CNN, occult CNS involvement? Um, well, I th think certainly it's a possibility. Obviously, you know, if the brain step gets involved and the, you know, cardiorespiratory centers and, you know, everything that's going to regulate, you know, blood pressure and, and respiratory drive get involved, uh, it, it, that certainly makes sense. Obviously, if these patients develop enough brain edema, even if, you know, again, they don't have an infection, but they're just experiencing inflammation of the brain, you know, that can contribute to things. You know, I mean, I think 
a lot of these patients, you take this, you know, this, this stroke patient uh, who is, who is seen yesterday. I mean, that patient is set up, you know, now, you know, she's got this right hemispheric stroke, but she's got clearly has pulmonary involvement now pretty significantly based on her, the CT findings on uh, that we saw looking at the CT of her neck. You know, she's got CKD, she's got coronary artery disease. She's got a lot of things going against her. Uh, you know, I, my suspicion is that for a lot of these patients, it truly is multi, um, uh, you know, organ system yeah. injury that, that ultimately needs to their demise. It's not strictly a, a pulmonary phenomena. Right. Uh, what, how, do you think it's worth, worth the risk of increased patient contact time to do the LP when it may or may not change our, our treatment? Uh, yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I think that there's going to be, you know, that added hurdle at a practitioner level to say, you know, do I really want to potentially expose myself to diagnose something that, um, you know, there's, there's a, a significant probability the patient's management is not going to ch change based on, you know, what I find on this. I honestly don't know the right answer for that, Russ. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what other thoughts are about that. I mean, that's really something that I was have been grappling with as I put this together because I felt compelled to really provide some, some better guidance than I'm able to relative to that. But I honestly, I don't know what the right answer is. Um, yeah. Maybe we should name this uh, acute Im immune mediated encephalitis. Sure. Well, and you know, obviously, you know, if you look at encephalitis, there's infectious cephalitis and there's immune system, uh, you know, there's autoimmune cephalitis um, and, you know, post-infectious cephalitis, which is immune mediated. So definitely, you know, um, I think you, you see, we're going to see both forms of encephalitis in these patients. Some of these patients are going to have a viral encephalitis from COVID-2 uh, COVID and some of these patients are going to have uh, you know, autoimmune or not necessarily autoimmune, but immune system or the cytokines. Yeah. From the cytokines. Sure. So. Hey, and can you circulate that first article from November or December? Yeah. The viruses article. Yeah. That's, that'd be kind yeah. of. Cool. It's got 326 references. So have at it. Um <laughs> Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! CMC out.